when we launched our products of my first company, we validated this by just launching it on the market. As I said, it was a failure, but that, that we learned a lot. I mean, we had some assumptions about the business model and the user's behavior in the app. And then you just you integrate analytics and then you launch and then you see that they behave in a completely different way. They just click different things. They, they don't want to pay for the things you thought they're going to pay. And I think that's the best validation you can have. So just launching product. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where a delighted client is the best business strategy there is. I'm your host, Jeff Maynes. In last week's episode, my guest was Charles Amashta, co-founder and CEO of Do Genius On. We talked about innovations in mobile apps, cutting development time and costs in half, and the future of mobile. If you missed it, be sure to give it a listen, especially if you have or have thought about developing a mobile app. There are some golden nuggets in there for you, for sure. So I love it when somebody makes me think differently, and Charles really did. Our guest this week is Jan Kaminski, co-founder and chief sales officer at AppLover, a full-stack digital agency. AppLover is growing like crazy and doing some amazing things. They believe with the right team and right approach, you can do more with less. In just a few years, they've grown to over 120 people, completed over 180 projects. That's 180 projects. It blew me away. They've won awards from Deloitte and Fast Company two years in a row. So join me in welcoming the man, the legend, and the Fast 50 rising star, Jan Kaminsky. Today's episode is sponsored by my book, Small Fish Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. So why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? And what can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning fast results. Get your copy today at smallfishbigpond.com. Use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus content. My guest today is Jan Kaminski. Jan, welcome to SAS Fuel. Hi, hi. Well, yeah, tell me a little bit about your background, uh, where you come from, and about AppLover. Sure. So I'm the founder of AppLover, which is the software development agency, or as we call it in the CEE region, a software house. That's the expression that is not that commonly used in the US. But we are an outsourcing uh, partner. So basically, we build mobile applications and web applications for our clients, mainly from US, Canada, and Great Britain. We are currently over 120 people. The, develop, the headquarters is located in Poland, in Wrocław, a lovely city. But we have offices all over. But we, I actually, I didn't start with services. I started with a product company called Footsteps. It was a tourist app. But then the whole idea pivoted into uh, the agency. Yeah, it's kind of opposite of a lot of people. A lot of people will start with the agency and, and go to an app. So you went from 
from a, actually a SaaS application into agency. How did you make that transition? Well, first of all, we were, when we started the first company, Footsteps, I'll just give you a quick background on that. It was an app, it was a tourist app that gave you like personalized routes. So based on your preferences, you could be I don't know, an artist, a businessman, history lover. And based on that, you got a route adjusted to your needs, right? So it was like a personalized guide. And we launched, it was a great adventure. We were building an MVP and then we launched it. We had a B2C business model, which turned out complete failure. <laughs> when we launched it, we didn't, you know, make a single dollar out of this model. And we found out that, that you know, the model is just bad and we are burning cash so badly on salaries and everything. We just need, needed to do something. And then we just changed the model completely. We were, uh, it was a, into the B2G, so business to government, because we started selling this application as a SaaS application for local governments in Poland. We were providing those services to over 60 cities, and then we were trying to scale up abroad, so into dark countries, so Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, and other. But we just knew that they're, they, they're, it came to a moment where it just wasn't scalable enough. I mean, we just, the model, the B2G model from the sales perspective is just awful because it was like an app in the SaaS model. So we were selling this and not for the governments not to build their own apps, which is obviously costly. We were providing them this license, right? So this wasn't scalable. And in the meantime, once we were in the business, in the tech business, a lot of friends and then business partners starting approaching us and they were like, listen, can you build an app for us? Or, and we thought, why not? Maybe we can have a, like a separate branch that will just generate some cash for us. And then when this business started to generate more like leads and revenue, we just pivoted. And I think we had, like, as I said, we thought that it's just way more scalable. But right now, after six years, I'm in a different period where we already scaled up with the service company, but scaling a service company, scaling a product are completely different things. Completely. Yes, they are. So obviously with products, with SaaS or any other products, you scale marketing and sales and the product itself, that's the core business. In services, it's about people and sales, right? So clients and people and scale with people. So, okay, you can grow, but it means you have a bigger and bigger organization, right? So for me, when we reached 20 people, it was a problem that I was like, okay, we need to reach to 50 and then we reached to 100. And each of those levels is just completely different from the management perspective, from the from every, like from every perspective, from every angle. So what do you think that the biggest challenges are as the team continues to grow? I think you're exactly right. It is different, but you know, 20, 50, 100, 120, you know, well, what are the, the big challenges? So I would say from 20 to 50 level, it's the management structure. So basically you as a founder need to just, just, learn this lesson that you need to delegate and even though you think you just do everything in the most detailed way and you'll be the best at it you just need to do it you need oh, to have managers we think we're really good at what we do like yeah, everything, we think, yeah. i thought i'm really great at a lot of <laughs> things too. but i'm not i'm not i'm not yeah, and I, right now i see that because i see that how those people deliver that right so basically that was the first thing and then when you build, I mean, that's not an easy thing. Don't get me wrong. Building a management structure, people that you trust. So that was the first step for us. So just hiring a marketing manager, an HR manager, and then delivery managers, like a project manager, let's say PMO or like head of project management. 
And then when we reached 100, it becomes, it's the same problem, but at a different angle. So you still, it's still a problem with delegating and management, but it's like top management, like C-level management. You need better managers. You need managers that are not really great at managing a team of five, but are great at managing a team of 20, which is, I mean, it's just a harder hire. Right. It's a different skill. Exactly. And I would say that these are, so this is one thing. And the second thing is sales, obviously. So we were like, we had this strategy to have like each year we were building a sales team and marketing team of the, let's say the size of a team was of our idea on how we want to grow next year. So let's say we were always slightly bigger sales team or marketing team that we needed at the time because we knew that they need to like, you know, they need to work for the, for the sales channel that we want to have in a year, like a sales pi like a pipeline, right. Of leads and clients. So that was also a struggle because it's, you know, it generates costs, right. Of course. Mm -hmm. So that was the second thing I think. And yeah, so, you know, but as I said, in services, I reached this level in the service business, not in the product business. So right. I can say it from that perspective. I suppose that in product, it's slightly different. So did you always want to be an entrepreneur or is this something that uh, you just kind of fell into? No, not really. I mean, I was a lawyer for a while. I was uh, like, during the, my time at the university, I just, just wanted to do something on my own, but it was a coincidence that I ended up in tech, to be honest, because we were business, like right now I call him a business partner, but he approached me and he said, listen, we have an idea for an app and let's just build it. That was the one I mentioned at the beginning. And we did, although we had no idea how to build a product, like seriously, we went through an acceleration program, which was great. And I really strongly recommend this to all the founders that, and it really doesn't, I mean, of course it matters which one, if it's a Y Combinator or one of the top, obviously that's awesome, but it can be either like the local one. And there are a lot in every single country and bigger city. Right. And I really think that that was a great value that they gave us from every perspective, from like how to approach marketing, how to approach a product, how to approach sales. And some of those give you cash for the, like non-equity cash for start. <laughs> It's right. not like when we got the first, like the first, I would say it wasn't a round, but let's say like we thought it's like, you know, a lot, but after a while it turns out that tech is expensive as well. So you just need money to build a product and you just, right. Need... So, yeah, it's so, not so free. no, it's not free. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I ended up in tech. And so I would say it's pretty common, but, but still, I mean, I love it. I would say that there is no other industry that is growing so rapidly. Without a doubt. Yeah. And a lot of change. It's a very dynamic industry as well. Exactly. So one of the things that's gotten a lot of press over the last few years has really been UX, UI. So it's all about the, the user experience. Why is that important? And, and how do we create things that have a great UX and UI? Well, obviously UX, UI is crucial at our work in Appleover, right? Because we build beautiful products, but it's not only about this. They have to be usable, right? Because they're for particular customers or clients. Although I'm not the expert, we have a, like really great designers in AppLover. And I think that UX UI is just becoming more and more important and it will for various reasons. 
of course we focus on digital products but if you think about this with aging society or covid pandemic you just see that ux ui is just everywhere for example i don't know from the passport application you need to fill in or the route to your home right it's designed in a way so obviously we focus on digital also like mobile so web applications or like products in general but still i think it will just be more and more important in future years that makes a lot of sense and and i like that you brought up just different demographics because what is good ux or ui for you know an aging population is different than you know a 20 year old yeah and of course so really knowing your audience and knowing you know who your target is i think is really important so what do you think about that yeah i mean for example we recently hosted a webinar about the discrimination in design so how can you discriminate like with your ux ui and you can't like imagine if someone is disabled or blind or has i don't know one hand for example and these are issues that designers have and of course this is something different in age but that's also important you have to think about your customer or your potential user of the product you built obviously and we try to do it as an agency i mean we try to be really close uh, like the whole process is designed in a way that we want to be close with the customers of our clients as well in order to just really feel for whom this product is so when you roll something out is are you using like the concept of mvp and and how do you know if that's validated or not or how do you well, know if you need to go back and redo it sure so i'll tell you a story out of like a personal experience so basically when we launched our products of my first company we validated this by just launching it on the market as i said it was a failure but that we learned a lot. I mean, we had some assumptions about the business model and the user's behavior in the app. And then you just integrate analytics and then you launch and then you see that they behave in a completely different way. They just click different things. They, they don't want to pay for the things you thought they're going to pay. And I think that's the best validation you can have. So just launching the product. And for example, we try to do it with our clients. So we always, because... There are a lot of startups that come and they say, okay, listen, we have this idea for an app. We want you to build it. And when we see the list of features, it's like a year of development, right? So after a year, so many things can change. So we always try to right. divide it into, for example, let's say a classic, it's like three month period where you can actually build an MVP. So a functional product that you're going to launch and your client can launch and, and just see what's the feedback from the clients. Because usually after the launch, they completely change the assumptions. They add new features, delete the old ones, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the best validation. And I know it's a little bit touristic, but it is just, you know, be on the market as soon as possible. Try to sell as soon as possible to your potential customers or clients. And that was the, the, the lesson I've learned for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of us have those failed attempts where we think something's a really good idea and we put it out there and we find out that the market thinks differently. Yeah, that's true. That's for sure. Yeah. For sure. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> Me too. Well, I think that's smart though, getting it out there because the only opinion that matters is your users. It's your, your client. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, for example, what we always, when we have companies that approach us at a very, very beginner's level, let's say, so they have just a concept, right? So we always try to advise to, and we always ask them about the model, et cetera, because that's also important from our perspective, from the development perspective, from the future perspective, et cetera. So we always try to sell them, even if you have mock-ups or like design, just go out there, you know, talk with your clients, just show them a mock-ups and just say, listen, that's their product. It's already live or something, right? You can always say it and just check if they're going to be interested. So I would say, yeah, so like summing up, I would say just 
just launch as soon as possible. Don't, it, it doesn't matter if you have 10 users, right? It's a feedback. It's not your imaginary feedback in your mind. It's a real right. one. Uh, that's really smart. So now this is a, a question that I think a lot of people would have in, in building their teams. You know, two big choices is do I hire internally or do I outsource? So it, at what point should you outsource or are there specific projects that are better outsourced or other things that are better kept in-house? Yeah, there, there, I think there are two best timings where you can outsource. And there are, like, I'll focus on the two. So the first is when you have no tech expertise in-house in your company, or for example, you have a CTO or a director of engineering, but you don't have a development team and you're under some kind of a pressure and you need to launch an MVP as soon as possible. So basically hiring internally will take time for sure. And it will be costly. And especially if you don't have a knowledge in how, so let's say you want to build a mobile app and you've chosen not to pick the native technologies like Swift for iOS and Kotlin Java for Android, you want to speed it up and you are thinking about a different tech stack, let's say Flutter or React Native. But your own team has no experience with that. So even if you recruit, there is a chance that you will fail. And therefore, I mean, that's a reason where you can actually think, okay, we can outsource to a professional provider and they will just deliver an MVP for us. We can always recruit later on or build a team in the meantime, but we'll have, you know, we'll have something already developed. Or even a partner can help you with the team structure, building a team. So for example, we do it in AppLover, right? We build MVPs for clients, but of course, let's say long-term goal is to hire their own team. And even sometimes that's an investor's pressure, right? To have your own team. And that's okay. We help you with that. And I think so that's the first, let's say timing. So when you want to build something, but you don't really have the expertise or there's a time pressure. And this, there's a second timing where outsourcing is just useful. It's a scaling period. So basically, let's say you got around, you, you need to hire so many developers in, in, in a month or two because you just need to deliver. It's kind of the same problem, but a different scale, right? So you just need to just grow so fast and you just can't hire internally so, that fast. That's just the reality. That's the market, you know, how it is with developers and especially good developers are not waiting on the bench to, you know, for a good project. They're already, yeah, they're already being contracted somewhere. So I think then you can reach out to an outsourcing uh, provider, software development company, because for example, in Apple, where we have two models, the, the, the one, so for the first thing I mentioned, it's called like a project-based approach where you're responsible for everything. You're responsible for project management, quality assurance, development, obviously. And the second one I described, it's called team extension, right? Or team augmentation. So you can you give you give your client a whole team that's already structured in a way because that's called team design. So basically they have their own leaders, EMs, so engineering managers and the, the core team, and they extend your client teams, but your client team, but obviously the difference is that then your client manages the team because at their scale, usually at the scale up scale, let's say that will be the requirement. They want to manage it. They have their own product team, POs, and that's it. So I would say these are the two timings where you might consider that. That makes a lot of sense. So do you have companies, I mean, obviously you're working with bigger companies as well. Do you have small companies that come to you with ideas yeah. but don't necessarily have the funding behind them? Yes. I mean, used to as well. Of course, we don't have a ticket that we work with like exclusively. We work for enterprises and scale-ups, but we also work for SMB and like smaller companies, startups with, let's say, seed round that they just building an MVP. 
the, the things that I described. So yes, usually the difference is that at this level, the agency like ours is also, I mean, they're not only providing software development services, but also consulting because they help you with architecture, of, for instance, architecture for, you know, UX, UI, as you mentioned, they help you with everything. It's mainly for companies that, as I said, they don't have in-house expertise yet, or they're building that. So they need a partner that will consult. They will help them with the creation of the, of the product, mobile app or the web application, but they will plan it, build a technical specification, et cetera, et cetera. And they will do it in a professional way. For bigger clients, it's mainly about the teams, the team design and how you manage them internally. Because in the end, the biggest gain for you, except of the outcome, so the product, is that the agency is taking off all the things connected with HR, managing the team, like problems within the team, et cetera, et cetera. Like agency is handling, handling that, right? You right, focus yeah. on the product, you need a product and that's your problem and they're solving that. But everything else is just, it's on them basically. So yeah, so I think that would be the kind of approach. Okay. You know, thinking about uh, web development, specifically apps, what do you think about uh, using tools versus native or yeah, native development? So, you know, React versus mm -hmm. native development. What are the pros and cons? It really depends. It's up, usually more corporate clients use obviously native languages because they're just the native. So they will always be there in a right. sense. And for more complex features, when you read really complex features or the app is just really big, then native would be a suggestion but for mvps and and scaling fast the cross would be would be an option too so like flutter or react native as i mentioned it's because and also we see a lot of scale ups doing that for with react native and, and flutter flutter is fairly new but react native especially so it's happening i wouldn't it's up to and by the way of course the react native flutter so all the cross the cross languages, they're help. I mean, they're, they kind of save you cost because you just need, let's say for a native team, you need one developer for Android, one developer for iOS. Right. Yeah, you need one and, yeah. And you cover both platforms. So it's cost efficient for sure. I would say you save around from 30 to 40% for, so, so yes. So it's up to your, it's really about your business assumptions and what you need from the product. For example, if mobile is your core sales channel, then I would really consider native. But if it's not, if it's an addition, let's say you're building a CRM system or ERP system or something, but mobile isn't that important for you, it's just an addition, then I would go with Flutter or React Native because it can save costs, right? I mean, it can save you money. So it's a business decision in the end. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think it also matters what your team is, what your team understands or what your outsourcing partner knows. Yeah, that's true. And, that's and true. having those capabilities and, and being able to make a choice. Yeah, but once you decide on that, then you can look for an outsourcing partner because there are ones that are specialized, right? There are ones that specialize in particular languages and tech stocks. It's a very big market, to be honest. So I would say that first I would focus on the business decision. Like, of course, the partner can advise and just say, listen, this is a better option for you at this, at this stage and they should, but they will probably, I mean, but it's, I would say it's a business decision in the end. And usually, for example, with also one more thing that you might consider is the availability of developers. So in the future, like once you move the team into internal, like 100% internal team, then think about the tech stack you picked 
because if it's a really like you know niche uh, tech stack, then you might have problems hiring. If you pick a stack that is just you know not as popular as the core ones. With native, that's usually you know with native, it's this shouldn't be problem. There, that's probably the biggest pull uh, from the talent perspective. That makes a lot of sense. So making that the right decision. And uh, yeah. so, I mean, that would be something that you could help with as well in helping make that, that business decision. And, you know, what are the right tools for the job? Yeah, I mean, that's actually, a, I would say it's even broader question because when you're looking at companies like a software development companies and trying to pick one, there are a lot of things you need to consider. First thing, when I would look at the, when I would just be looking for a partner, first thing is the experience in the similar industry or similar products. That's usually how agencies win their deals, right? Because they've built sure. something very similar. So it just builds trust. Listen, they delivered this product. They will be able to deliver that product, right? That um, makes sense. The second thing is very obvious, but testimonials and feedback. What we do in AppLover, we always connect our clients with different clients. I mean, but live, like real person. Because I always say like a B2B sales is H2H sales, right? It's human to human sales. You That's sell right. to a particular director or to a particular uh, board member or somebody right? Or a founder. So basically I would check that and I would ask a company to send me some referrals, not only read them, because if you have a referral, then obviously they're great, right? I mean, who shows bad referrals? Right. So just check it live. And I think that's possible for, for better companies, for good companies, for sure. Third thing is technology stack. So the things we discussed in the, in the past, like what technologies they use, if it's native for mobile, if you're building a web application, if it's React for web for front end or Vue.js or Angular, or maybe they you want them to advise, but still, you know, check what they have, check what kind of teams that they have. And to be honest, the thing I would like I'm always advising is visit the headquarter. Of course, if you're outsourcing to Asia and it's really really hard to just you know go there, okay, that might be tricky. But if you're outsourcing to the CEE region. If you're outsourcing to Poland or, you know, Poland's the biggest market here, right? So let's say it's Poland. And I would just, you know, get in the plane and just visit the headquarter. It will give you a lot of insights on the company. You just see the culture, the atmosphere, and I'm sure they'll host you, right? Especially if, I mean, listen, if you're planning to spend $50,000 or $100,000 on the development, and that's usually a ticket that you have for an MVP, to be honest. Sure. Or even bigger, obviously, but like for the MVP, like let's say it's a minimum for you, for like a functioning product, then I would visit them. Like what's the cost of the ticket in comparison to that? It's just, I would say it's obligatory for, and, and it's, it's really useful and it will tell you a lot about the company. That's a so, great so, idea, especially if you're going to spend that kind of money, you know, the plane ticket doesn't cost a lot yeah. and you get to, to see a beautiful country as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. And cool. we always invite our clients and we, we host them here. And I think, I mean, Brasov is a beautiful city and all of our clients are invited and welcomed, obviously. So that would be that in terms of picking the, the company. Well, that is fantastic. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back here with Jan, we are going to ask the question, why is it that outsourcing projects fail and what can we do about it right after this? Today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a growth plan to scale your SaaS beyond 10 million. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. 
celebrate wins, and quickly rebound from setbacks to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash your SaaS growth at championleadership.com. And welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest is Jan Kaminsky, CEO of App Lover. And we've been talking about uh, outsourcing. And so one of the big questions that I think is, is really kind of a black box a lot of times is, you know, why and when do outsourcing projects fail? And uh, how do we avoid that and make sure that they are successful? Yes. So I would say that there are a few. My first pick would be communication. So just when you're looking for a partner, you're looking for a company, you have to open the agency, just talk with them on how would you like this service to look like? Like who will be responsible for the management, right? Like meet this person, talk with this guy or a girl, find out what, how the developers are usually working and what tools they're using. These are the questions that are very, very basic. If you, I mean, of course, but people just don't ask them at the beginning. And I think that's very, very important. Make sure that they have a QA team, right? So quality assurance team. That's so important. don't skip this part. Yeah, that's, that would be, that's the first thing. The second thing is unclear objectives or like poor product specification. The success of the project is likely to be compromised by like a fake indication of an outside uh, company of what we want. So basically, of course, from one perspective, the company should help you with building a specification. For instance, in AppLover, we, for new clients, we hold a series of workshops when we're working with client and we build them a technical specification. I mean, we create a technical specification of a product, of a final product, and also of the MVP. We create mockups and so wireframes and document the whole, the whole thing. So basically that's, that's, a, that's a basic start before starting a development itself. So I would say like, make sure you communicate what you want and, 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 and build that specification with the company because after that, you know, software development is a very complex process and the developers might see the features differently once you explain them, but just make sure they got it right. In the end, you know, we're in the people's business. So make sure that it's just very, very clear and your requirements and specifications that even if your provider doesn't create one, they do not create one. I think they should, they really should. And that's like a basic thing to just check whether they're professional. The third aspect is just ambiguous costs. So, you know, nothing can spoil the cooperation. The, um, like the sudden information about additional costs that you, you didn't, you know, you didn't know about. So I would just make sure that all the arrangements about pricing, how do you count the hours or man days? What's the, like, what's the payment schedule, etc. Just make sure it's in the contract, make sure it's in the order and that everything is clear there and you have exact features described or if it's a time and material contract which means basically renting a team and then paying per hour or per day rate then it's also there and it's very very clear what you're paying for so this is the third aspect and you know there are some minor concerns like for example for especially enterprise clients or big clients scale-ups it's data security so how the, the company is handling that aspect like what's the process that they have for that? Uh, that, that sometimes it's important, but yeah. yeah it's it's that. important that they do have a process. Yeah, they, not yeah, just, uh, exactly. yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're just, exactly. You sign an NDA and that's it. Like, right, right. It shouldn't look like that. So basically, yeah, just ask them if they have a process, what, is, what it's like. They should have it written and they should, you know, send it over immediately. 
But if you were to go into the details, I would also ask them about their standards. So like, for example, you know, CI, CD standards, so continuous integration, continuous development standards, their process of development in general, like what's like if they're working in agile methodology, like Scrum, what's the deal here? Because they might work. Each company has their different approach. So it just might be slightly different per company. So yes, so these would be the aspects I would cover for sure. Uh, that's important, especially the, the requirements. I think that's where I've seen more projects fall apart than any other is uh, not spending enough time on design and requirements and just jumping right to development because you want to build yeah, exactly. an MVP out the door. Exactly. And look at this from this perspective. Like, for example, in AppLover, we, we always, as I said, we proposed a series of workshops and like there is a price for that. And usually clients are asking, yeah, listen, but we haven't really started development yet. So like, why there is a problem? And then our standard answer is, listen, if you are to spend 100 or $200,000 for your product and you don't want to spend like 2000 for an analysis or any sum, but like a proper right. analysis of the project, right? Like, so how you want to approach it? That's what, where is the logic here, right? So we always try to, the preparation phase is just crucial because then it really saves you time. And believe me, it saves you money, especially as you said, if the specification is just poorly written or it's just you know, a few pages and no one, and or it's just very, very general and like nobody knows what it's really describing or the features are described in a really, really poor manner, I would say, like not, not really detailed. Then, you know, for me, it would be a red alert. I would like, really dig into that uh, with the company. So uh, make sure yeah. that's very clear. It's easy for us to, to write on the outside. We write descriptions of, of our own products and then we pass that off to a development team, I mean, whether it's internal or, or outsourced. And you know they don't have the, the benefit of that knowledge inside our heads. They only know what we've told them. Yeah, exactly. so it, it's really that connecting those dots and really painting that picture so that the vision is transferred. Exactly. And as I said, like in the end, like this is, it's a people's business and we are the company is a service provider. So we work on how our clients want us to work in, in some sense. Right. So like this, as I said, communication, like very being transparent with your goals, also not only development goals, but also business goals, because it will really help the agency and like the team that you're working with understand where you want to be and why you want to be there. And I think that's very, very important. So what lessons have you learned as an entrepreneur? What are the biggest lessons you've learned? There are a few. The first, I mean, the, the first thing I've learned that's very important is that there is no need to wait. And I would say that's the, the most crucial one. I mean, what I mean by this is whether you have a plan for yourself and you want to start your own company and you say, I will do it in five years. So I would really question, I mean, I would really ask myself this question. Why can't you do it in six months or why can't you do it in a year? I've learned that a lot of things that I did in the past, I mean, the, the problems or the obstacles I, I thought are important, I just, you know, they're not really. And I would really do this exercise. Like, why can't I be there in a year or so? So yeah, no need to wait was, was the one I, I really, I would really, I mean, I would always say this. And the second thing is, and I've learned that from my investors, is that failure is overrated. You know, so it's like, it's just overrated because we think that failing, like failing a business is a learning experience, right? Or it's like an education, it has some educational valors. Maybe it does, but look, we failed, like our first company failed for reason, let's say A, B, and C, 
right? Your second business might fail because of reason C, A, and D, but there was a reason right. you, you know you haven't really thought about, and that's not really. I mean, I just don't like the startup approach. Like you know, build once, like if you fail, then you go to another. I mean, failure is. I mean, death of a business it is a tragedy. You know, people get fired. You don't pay your contractors. You're left with the debt usually, and yeah. So just I wouldn't treat failure as a you know, like such a great thing and such a learning experience. I would really like to avoid it. You know. <laughs> yeah. So avoid failure. That's a good one. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, yeah. So like, not welcome it. You know what I mean. So like, not yes, welcome yes. it that openly. And the third one was uh, like the culture because when I founded up, like when we founded up, I was always concerned about how to build a culture. And like how those great companies build a perfect culture where just people want to stay and they want to stay at work, work late hours. They really believe in the company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's very important at the beginning. I mean, that the culture is just. I mean, it's just underestimated. The, the culture is uh, is built by you. I mean, your personality builds the whole. It's just like a foundation. I mean, the founders' personalities are usually the foundation of the culture at the beginning because the process that you implement. The decisions that you make, like these are your decisions. So you will be the, you know, the you will be the core element of that culture, and they will be based on like kind of you. So like you attract people, and at the beginning especially, and your vision. And I've learned that. So yeah, I know that should be one advice. <laughs> That's the third one, I think. But these were really important for me, I think. So in building a business, did you have mentors, or yeah, how did you learn? Yes, I mean. First thing, acceleration program, and after that, like we got connected with a lot of mentors. Like each acceleration program or incubator does it. So basically, like we got a, we were, we built a supervisory board with some mentors and advisors at the beginning. Later on, when we found an app over, we had some investors. So then they became mentors. They were maybe not them per se, but they were connecting us with people that might help us. We were building an informal board of advisory because obviously some startups build it like formally and they put the board of advisors to the pitch decks, etc. But like we did it informally just as a platform to exchange knowledge. You know, we meet once a month and we just talk with those people about our problems. They're usually people from businesses that we aspire to be in a year or two, right? So either managers right. or founders or boards. Like we try to deal with the C level, let's say, kind of people and in those companies or founders or if that's perfect and we just you know have this session each month where we just talking about our problems that we're currently having per month per quarter in the company and you know it's just these advices are priceless because they've been there right we for example we have some problems with the scalability right now right we want to scale into 200 people almost 200 people this year because we're going to be like 170 and we have some problems with this and like talking with people that already built companies that are 200, 300, 500 people and they can share their knowledge on how to get there. You know, there is no, it's just, you can't get this knowledge from a book. Or, right, or right. And it's real time as well. Yeah, that's true. So that's it, true. it's what, what is working right now because they're, they're in it. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. So what's the, the best advice that you've received? Well, the best one. I think that the, I think the best advice would be that business is a roller coaster and that you have ups and downs and you just need to get used to that. You know, listen, I mean, at the beginning, that was my, that was a problem because 
each week, especially when you're just at the beginning of the journey. And that's the first six months, let's say. You have some ups and downs, right? And each week you have two good information, like two great things happen to your company and four bad things happen to your company. And like <laughs> one day you're just, you know, thrilled and excited because something happened. And then the next day, the biggest line leaves you or something. I don't know. The, the second biggest line, they just don't pay the invoice or something. And you have a problem. So I just, I think just when I realized that these ups and downs are normal and it's, it's, it's every single founder has, I mean, they're all have it. Like, we all have it. So yes. then it just—I mean, you know—it it didn't really change anything, but it just felt better. You know, it felt better. <laughs> so yeah, that would say I would say that because I think that each founder needs to pay attention to his mental health, and that's really important. Just realize that this situation—I mean, you're in a situation where like each founder has it. There. We're used to the idea. I mean, we're used to our social media and LinkedIn, probably Instagram sometimes or Facebook, mainly probably Instagram and, and LinkedIn, where like, what you communicate are usually great things that happen. You're surrounded with great decisions and, you know, and new deals and, and new rounds. And, and then you look at yourself and you're like, I cannot write anything there. But <laughs> that's 100% true. All we yeah. see is the highlight reels. Yeah, of course, and, of course. And, and, but you need to just realize. Yeah, like I think you just need to realize that this is one percent of those businesses, like it, right. what they share, and ninety-nine percent is—it's just not looking that way. I mean, like this, and that's that's just, just true. And to just check that, talk to other founders. Like I think the first two will have the same problems that you have. It's so freeing to have those kind of conversations with founders, and it's just when people are just real, and, and you really get to know. The story behind the story. Yeah. And by the way, that's why I think, I really think that these kind of, okay, we structured this as a, let's say, more unofficial board, informal board of advisors. But you can, like, there are a lot of mastermind sessions that you can have with other funds. There are even, like, companies that organize it. And they're free. You don't have to pay organizations, but they're just free for particular businesses, either industry-oriented or maybe size-oriented. But there are lots of those and i really recommend them because it just clears out your head no, that's great so what do you think the future of outsourcing is is it going to be easier or harder what does the future look like for, uh, for outsourcing it became easier because obviously because of covid we all started working remotely at some point so basically the biggest fear of majority of companies was like listen how can i work with the whole team that just remote and I don't see them or I will never see them for some, you know, for some reasons. And right now, since everyone are used to that and everyone are used to remote work, then, you know, those companies are starting to ask, I mean, to ask themselves this question. Okay, so maybe I can lower the cost structure, you know, change my development center and just have the same outcome, right? So, that's why I think it's easier. And even I see the market, I mean, I see what's happening on the market right now. It's booming. I mean, Self-development services are just booming. Oh, we are absolutely. going with a rate yeah. of like 140% annually with revenue, with income. So, and not only us, like all the agencies and all the founders I know of, of other agencies, but there is a threat to that as well because COVID changed this different aspect. So it made big companies, especially scale-ups, to build development centers in those regions where outsourcing, so like CE or Asia, 
but I'm focusing on C. So let's say, for example, in Poland, there are a lot of scale-ups that just built their development services, which obviously is hard for us because it's just poaching. I mean, it's poaching talent. Of course, it's competitive and like, you know, right. we're all competing for the same talent, the but, same resources, yeah. but it's kind of, it's way harder to compete with them because they got around and they can pay above average and they don't care about burning cash because it's about the product, etc. It's a different approach, right? Than the service provider. So yes, that's a threat for sure. What we want to do in Apple, we, we want to build like our services. Our vision is to build like a dev center as a service, right? So to be able to work with those startups and just take off all the responsibility of them. We just, they, we become essentially the innovation center or development center for them. But, and COVID helped us with this, I'm sure. But I will see if it helped us in the long term or just, you know, a few years. That's good. Well, Jan, how can people learn more about you and about AppLover online? Well, you can visit our website, obviously, which is applover.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn. So, yeah, if you have any questions, also you can write me an email at jan at applover.com and feel free to reach out. And we'll make sure and link all of those in the show notes. And so you can go and, and check out right. App Lover and Jan. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. So Jan, it's been great having you on the, the show today. It's been and great. Wish you and App here. Lover well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks again to Jan for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Jan and App Lover at applover.com. And of course, check them out on all social media as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. As a reminder, if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. I'll be sure to read these out on a future episode or give us a call, leave comments or feedback, or just let me know you're out there listening by calling 903-SASFUEL. We'll tune in next week for a conversation with Andrew Butt, co-founder and CEO of Enable a modern cloud-based B2B software solution for rebate management that has revolutionized revenue models for distributors, wholesalers, and manufacturers across 50 industries. So check it out next week. And until we meet again, enjoy the journey.